0: Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you have been with us the last few weeks, you know that we have been in a series called The Lord of the Church. In this series, we've been looking at Revelation chapters 1-3. through And in Revelation we we see a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. And specifically in the first 3 chapters of this book, we see Jesus revealed as the Lord of the church. It begins with the apostle John seeing Jesus appear in all of his glory. But then it continues with Jesus taking up a pen and writing letters to seven churches, instructing them about the things they should continue and the things that they need to change, as well as giving to them a number of promises. You know, we began that a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. And then last week, if you were with us, you saw that we saw the letter he wrote to the church in Smyrna. Well, today we're going to continue our study by looking at the letter that he wrote to the church in Pergamum. And so we're going to see what Jesus says there to that church. But before we, we look at what he says to Pergamum, I want us to think a little bit for a moment about the contours of our own spiritual lives, the contours of our own spiritual lives. So I want you to do a quick audit of your own personal spiritual life, and I want you to think about what might, you might consider to be the high point of your personal spiritual life. Was there an era or a time or a season where your relationship with God was maybe a little bit more dynamic and central to your life. Maybe it was when you were a child and you were a part of a family that had family devotions or came to church together on Sunday, or you were a part of a Sunday school program or vacation Bible school. Maybe there was that time when you were a kid, or maybe it was when you were student ministry age, middle school, high school. You went to camp, you placed your faith and trust in Christ, you, you went to a D-Now type event, you got serious about your relationship with God. Or for others, maybe it was your time in college. You went off to college, your faith became your own, and you really began to, to rely heavily upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You spent your mornings in quiet times, your evenings in small groups, your afternoons sharing your faith on campus, your summers on mission trips. Or for others, maybe it was your experience as a young adult or newly married or your first time with children when you came to a church and in your adult life, you selected your first congregation and really began to get involved. I want you to think for a moment about the contours of your own spiritual life. Is there a a time or a season that you would consider to be a peak or a high point? Now, often we look back at those moments with some fondness, and we should. Those were great times and seasons of our lives. But the question I want to ask us today is, is that all there is? Is that what Christ really wanted? Is that what he really wants from us? Did he want us just to have this great and dynamic season followed by falling action until the day that we die? Or does Christ want us to continue and persist in an active and dynamic relationship with him? that sees our lives continually transformed until we see him in glory. Well, friends, I believe that Jesus wants our continued faithfulness. He he longs for a continued relationship with us. And we're going to see some of that by looking at this letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, This is a letter that we see in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. As Jesus dictates yet another letter to this real church, in the area of Asia. I want to read for us the words of Jesus to this church, and then I want to back up and have us look at uh, several things to connect it to our lives today. Jesus writes in verse 12 and says this. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, friends, these are the words that Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum, but We ought to pause for a moment and think, okay, so he wrote a letter to this church in Pergamum, but Pergamum seems a long ways from us. And there's stuff in here that I don't fully understand. I mean, is this a letter that you and I could get anything out of? Well, I want to point out two things that will connect us to this passage. The first thing is what Pergamum was known for. Pergamum was actually a university town. The most prominent feature in the town was a library that had more volumes in it than any other city in the world except Alexandria at the time. Two hundred thousand volumes were in the library at Pergamum. And this was in the day before the printing press. That's quite a collection. So we live in a university town. Pergamum was a university town. A lot of education in that place. And so we have that in common. But even more so, we have in common what Jesus says at the end of this letter. Jesus says, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so if we're here today, and whether it's our physical ears able to hear this message, or whether it's our eyes able to read this message, or someone is communicating it to us, we are aware of the revelation that Jesus gives, and he has something in it for you and for me. So what is it that Jesus has for us in these verses? Well, I want to walk through it in a number of movements. The first thing I want us to see is the past success of the church at Pergamum, their past success. Jesus was aware of it. Well, what was their past success? Well, the first thing we need to know is what was going on in Pergamum. Jesus describes the city of Pergamum this way. He says it is the place where Satan's throne is, and it's the place where Satan dwells. Now, to me, that tells me Pergamum was a pretty rough place, right? I'm guessing if you went to the Chamber of Commerce website or looked at the brochure for the city of Pergamum, they wouldn't have advertised themselves this way. And yet, this is what Jesus sees is going on in this city, he says, this is the place where Satan dwells. This is the place where Satan's throne is. So what in the world was Jesus referring to when he calls the city by these terms? Well, I think he was pointing out that this was a city that was known not just for its university, but also for its worship of pagan and false gods. There were a number of prominent temples in this city. One prominent temple in this city was a temple to Zeus. Another prominent temple in this city was a temple to Caesar Augustus. Remember Caesar Augustus, the one that we read about in Luke chapter 2, who was leading the Roman Empire at the time that Christ was born? That same Caesar Augustus, while he was alive, was deified, and they built a temple for him in the city of Pergamum, the only place in Asia where you could worship a living Caesar as God became a part of what we know of as the imperial cult, the the worship of the leaders of Rome as gods themselves. That was going on in this city. But also there was another temple, a very prominent temple, to a god or goddess that was identified with physical healing and was represented by a snake. Now, what was Jesus talking about when he says this is the place where Satan's throne is or where Satan lives some have tried to anchor it to one of those three. I, I think it could have just been all of them. This was a place where there was a lot of false and fake worship of things that weren't God going on. But I do think it's interesting that the, the, the goddess Asclepius, uh, Asclepius, who was the, the god of healing, was represented by a snake. And how is Satan first represented in the scriptures? As a serpent. And so this city had some some things going on in it. But even though this city was rough, and even though this city had some false worship happening there, the church in Pergamum had a season where they had remained strong. Specifically, thinking back to this time of success during the days of Antipas. Now, who was Antipas? Well, Antipas was... For the best we can tell, a a doctor or a dentist. He was someone that worked in the medical profession, a lot of that in this community that was known for its temple for healing. Uh, Antipas was working in that profession. And there would have been pressure upon Antipas as well as on the others in that city to not worship Jesus, but to worship Caesar as God. As a matter of fact, there would have been demands placed upon them. And failing to worship Caesar as God would have been seen as treasonous. And apparently that is what happened to Antipas. Arrested because of his unwillingness to worship Caesar as God, he was brought to trial in the public square. Not recanting his faith in Christ and not worshiping Caesar as God, he was placed inside of a bronze bowl that was heated until he died inside. Friends, this is what happened in the city where Satan lives This is what happened at the foot of Satan's throne. And the church stayed strong in that season. Jesus writes to them and he says, I remember the days of Antipas. I noticed the spiritual vitality that existed in the church at that time. And Jesus says, I I celebrate that moment in your history. You know, when we think about our lives and we think about those moments of spiritual high points for us, know that that, that Jesus knows those things and he remembers those things. And if Jesus were to pick up the pen and write you a letter, he would say, "I, I remember those moments when you walked deeply with me. I remember those summers. I remember that season. I remember that era of your life. Jesus says, I loved those times that we had together. Jesus notices our past success. But I think it's important for us to see that Jesus doesn't just remember their past success, but he says, but I want something more for you. I don't want you just to have a moment or a blip in the past that was exciting, but I want your hearts today. I want you to walk with me today. And so Jesus moves past from just their past success and he begins to talk about their present problem. So what was the present problems that were facing these, this, this church in Pergamum? Well, it had to do with compromise. It had to do with compromise. You can imagine in a, in a setting where people were saying, if you just worship Caesar, you'll be able to live and avoid being burned to death the temptation that might have existed for people to compromise and maybe worship Jesus plus Caesar. See, the church had had survived this past direct assault from Satan, but they had begun to be tempted by a subtle temptation to compromise over time. Warren Wiersbe describes it this way. He says, Satan had not been able to destroy them by coming as the roaring lion, but he was making inroads as the deceiving serpent. A group of compromising people had infiltrated the church fellowship and Jesus Christ hated their doctrines and their practices. The church in Pergamum had begun to give platforms and microphones and and book space. There weren't microphones and those things, but you get the idea, right? They were allowing there to be people to have influence upon the church who were encouraging compromise. Now, where do we see that compromise inside of this passage? How does Jesus talk about it? Well, he talks about it in a term that calls back a reference from the Old Testament. He says, what was going on in your church reminds me, Jesus says, of what went on in the days of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a character a, a person in history who lived at the time of the Exodus, all the way back, talked about in the book of Numbers. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you know something about Balaam? This is a pretty biblically literate group. Balaam was someone, though, for all of our sake, just to catch us up, he was a, a prophet. He was someone who, who spoke from from God. And the people of Israel had left Egypt and they were moving towards the promised land to claim it. As they're making their journey across the countryside, the other kings were watching their progress and they were getting nervous. They said, if we allow these Jewish people to move into our land, there's not going to be any land left for us. We've got to do something to stop them. And so Balak, who was a foreign king sees this progress and he he goes and he talks to Balaam and he says, Balaam, I will give you a bunch of money to come over here and curse the people of Israel so that, that God might stop them in their tracks. And so Balaam comes. Now, now, how did Balaam get there? He got there riding what? A donkey. And not just any donkey, right? He's riding a donkey, a talk- A talking donkey. That's hard to say. He's riding a talking donkey. Not a a donkey that talks all the time. I mean, they're not having coffee and Starbucks in the morning. But, But this donkey, in one particular incidence, sees the angel of the Lord blocking the path. And the donkey speaks. And the message is clear that Balaam is not to go and curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam shows up. And Balaam, instead of cursing Israel, blesses them three times. Well, after that, Balak is like, wait a second, I paid you good money to curse them. And instead you've blessed them. What have you done to me? Well, apparently, according to Numbers 31 verse 16, Balak was able to put some influence on Balaam and Balaam gave Balak some advice. And that advice was this. These people can't be cursed from God by me. But maybe you can entice them to compromise their faith so that God will intervene and discipline them on your behalf. And his plan went something like this. Why don't you have your daughters and all of the daughters of your land go and seduce the the young men of Israel and then invite them to worship your fake gods. And when you do that, God will discipline those people. And friends, that is exactly what happened. A number of the people of Israel married the foreign women, began worshiping their gods, and God intervened and disciplined Israel And 24,000 members of the nation of Israel died at that time. What we see in the church in Pergamum was Jesus writing. And he says, I see a similar kind of thing happening here. You were able to stand firm when they asked you to curse me. But now you have begun to, to compromise in different ways. Well, how were they compromising? Well, they were compromising through the influence of a group called the Nicolaitans. If you remember back when we looked at the church in Ephesus, they also had a presence in that city. We don't know for sure exactly what they taught, but in this letter, we get a little more clarity on the kinds of things they were promoting. Apparently, the Nicolaitans were promoting a compromise of the people of God. They were encouraging the the church there in order to miss out on the kind of persecution that Antipas had gone through. They were encouraging them to begin to participate in the pagan worship of the city so that they might be more accepted. In other words, if they would just go and worship Caesar as God and, and eat the food as a part of that celebration... And if they were just to go and enjoy the sexual promiscuity that happened with the temple prostitutes, then in the marketplace, they would be more accepted. And because they knew Jesus, then they also would have their eternity secure. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was something like this. Have your cake and eat it too. Jesus takes care of your eternity, but do whatever you need to do to fit in right here and right now. Jesus writes to them and and he says to them, that's not the way this should work. Jesus said, I don't just want a spiritual past success. I want your present devotion to me. I don't want you to just have stood strong in the past. I want you to stand strong with me right now in this moment. I want you to stop giving platform to those who are influencing people to compromise in their faith. And I want you to remain true to me. That's what Jesus says. That's what he writes to this church. He saw their present problem and he called it out. And friends, even as we sit here today, the the question we should ask is, is there any current temptation for us to be influenced by this kind of thought? And the answer to that absolutely is yes. If it can be true in the days of Balaam and it can be true in the days of Pergamum, it certainly can be true in the days of Norman, Oklahoma, where we can have influences around us that are are, are calling us, wooing us to, to compromise on our faith, to compromise on the integrity of our worship, to compromise on our beliefs and our morality in order to better fit in in the world in which we live. Jesus called them out. Jesus calls us out as well. This reality is talked about in other places in Scripture. In 1 Peter 4, 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, we live in a world, we live in a culture that if we don't join them in their promiscuity, if we don't join them in their entertaining of other gods, then we will be maligned. Romans chapter 1, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Friends, we live in a world and in a culture that is just inviting us all the time to compromise and to celebrate things that God calls sin. Jesus writes and says, don't just have a past success, stand strong in the present. Specifically, what are some of the Balaams of today? Who needs to hear from a donkey this morning? Well, a couple of thoughts. One of them has to do with those who would be taking platforms in churches and teaching other paths to God. You know, it's interesting, in in different places in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10, The idea of eating food sacrificed to idols is addressed as an issue of Christian liberty. In other words, apparently in Corinth, there was food that was offered as a sacrifice in the worship, but then it was taken out of the temple and was sold in the market. And the idea was that it was a matter of liberty whether Christians ate that food or not. What's happening in Pergamum is something altogether different. Because it's not talked about as an issue of liberty, it's talked about as an issue of sin, black and white. And I believe what is going on in Pergamum was there was this demand that they eat as a part of the worship of another God. And friends, this is an influence that is around the world today. There are those that want to say, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but don't you know there are many other paths to God? I mean, you can worship Jesus if you want to, but what about Islam? I mean, it's just another path headed up the same mountain. What about Hinduism? What what about naturalism? What about some other kind of ism? I mean, there's just all this other stuff that our world would say is equally valid to connect to God. And there's there's a a spirit of that. And if we don't embrace that, then we are maligned in our culture, as Peter said. What's the problem with that? It's not true. Jesus said, I am not a way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is not loving for us to perpetuate a statement that there are many paths up the mountain. Jesus doesn't want us to compromise on that truth so that we fit in in the the marketplace. He wants us to believe that the way is through Christ and then to lovingly reach out and evangelize those around us, pointing them to Christ as well. Another Balaam of today is teaching other patterns of sexuality. This is another big one in our day and age, isn't it? Where people are are trying to say that there are many different appropriate expressions of sexuality. That it's, it's okay somehow for a man and a woman, even if they're not married, to engage in sexual activity and conduct. There are people who want to, to say that it is okay for people to engage in sexual activity, even if they are of the same gender. There are those that, that want to say that, that it is okay for us to be fluid in how we define our gender. And yet, all of those things, friends, are not true. God has said that this thing that he created of sexuality is an amazing gift that he's given to the world in the confines of his direction and according to his purposes between a man and a wife, a husband and a wife in marriage. In any other expression of sexuality outside of those bounds is inappropriate and we should resist the urge to compromise even if it would allow us to gain greater standing in the public square. Friends, it is clear in these verses that Jesus doesn't just see their past success, but he sees their present problem as well. Well, what happens if we find ourselves in the midst of compromise? What is the the path forward? Well, Jesus, by his grace, defines that for us, doesn't he? so thankful for that. You know, we, we live a life that's not perfect. Our, our, our thinking is, is wrong at different times. And what do, we, what do we do when we find ourselves drifting? Well, Jesus tells us, he tells us that we're to repent. We're to repent. What does repent mean? Repent means to change our mind, to change our perspective, to turn away from looking to our own ideas to looking to his. And to walk not in our way, but to walk according to his way. That's the idea of repentance. And if we find ourselves adrift amidst compromise, Jesus said that we are to repent. Now, what is the motivation that he gives for us to repent? He provides it. I mean, pretty significantly, he provides it. And he provides it by pointing to his identity. Again, Jesus wrote all these letters to the churches. He did not sign them from Jesus. He signed them by pointing out some aspect of his identity that was revealed visually in the revelation that John saw in chapter 1. So how does he sign this letter to the church in Pergamum? He signs it as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And with that sword, he will come to war against those who are compromising inside of the church. Now, what is he talking about here? Certainly, the, the word of Christ will be used to judge on believers at the day of judgment. But, but also, friends, the word of Christ is something that we are accountable to as well. And I believe in context here, what Jesus is saying is, if you are compromising as a believer, if you are compromising as a church, expect Jesus to come and to address that if you don't repent. That's the motivation that he gives. And this reminds me a little bit of what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 and 10 say. He says, "...and and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." For they, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, Jesus, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Friends, Jesus is so committed, not just to our past success, but to our present devotion to him, that if we are in the midst of compromise, we should expect some discipline to come from him. Now, what does that discipline look like? It's unspecified. Whether that's a check in our spirit, whether that's a troubling of our emotions, or whether that is even leading to some kind of physical circumstance or situation as happened with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, it is unspecified here. But what we see is that Jesus is serious. He is coming to discipline a compromising church in order to bring them in line with his truth. He cares that much for us. You know, when we see a parent that doesn't discipline their child, part of us goes, they just must not love that child to not correct them when they need correction. Friends, our God loves us and he loves us enough enough to provide the correction that we need. The question really underlying this is something like this, which sword do we fear or respect the most? the sword of Rome, the sword of public opinion, the sword in the day of Antipas that that led to his death? Do we most fear that? Or do we have most respect for the sword of Jesus? Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I believe here, this is a statement To an unbelieving world that it is better to be faithful to him who can save us for all time. But this helps reveal, even for the believer, the priority and the importance of trusting in Christ and respecting and revering him most above all. And as a believer, we have an additional motivation, not just the fear of consequence, but also the response to the one who loved us, who bled, and who died for us. Friends, may may we respond to this present problem of compromise with repentance as we take that path forward. But one last thing I want us to see, and that is the promised provision. Jesus doesn't just say these things. He doesn't just give this challenge, but he, he talks about the blessing that is connected to those who follow him. Yes, this world may be difficult, but Jesus rewards amazingly those who are connected to Him. Well what, what is that reward that is talked about here? What is that provision? Well, first of all, it is talked about in verse seventeen as something that goes to those who conquer. Again, we've seen this in each of the letters to the churches. That word conquer is another word for believer. This is something that is available to all who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. If we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we have access to certain promised provision of God. So what is that promised provision? He says it is the provision of hidden manna. Now, manna was this food that God provided Israel in the wilderness, but it's talked about here as a hidden manna, I think talking about the spiritual food and nourishment that we need. See, we live in a world that may want to withhold their acceptance of us if we don't do what and say what they want us to say. But Jesus said, if you're with me, guess what? I'm gonna give you everything you need. I will give you the provision that you need. And not only that, but he goes on and says, and also, I'm gonna give you a white stone with a new name. Now, when we see this, we're like, wait a minute, what? What is that talking about? Because we don't live in Pergamum in the first century. White stones were tickets. They were, they were ways into the party with a with a special name on it written just between these two folks, right? What Jesus is saying is, if you're with me, you don't need to pursue intimacy with anything that moves. You can pursue intimacy with me. We can be together in fellowship forever. And I'm going to give you a backstage pass so that you have access to me at all times. Friends, it is absolutely worth it for us to be devoted to Christ forever because he is the one who is able to provide for our needs. And he is the one that has offered fellowship with us. Now, and forevermore. Now, we began this message and I talked a little bit about just our our spiritual past successes. And some of you may have thought of a moment at some point in your life. Here's what I wanna end with. You know what is really the high point for all of us? It's not our success at all. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to take the penalty that your sins and mine deserve. He rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven. He sent his spirit to reside within our hearts and lives and he has prepared a place for us where we can go and spend forever with him. Friends, that is what is available to those who believe. He's promised that we will conquer we trust in him. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just this opportunity to be together, to look at these verses, to be encouraged by their truth. We pray now that you would just guide us uh, as a a collection of individuals and as a church, uh, that we would stay faithful and true to you at all times. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, and we trust in him now. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.